Matthew chapter 27. In verse 33 we read, And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. And when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, sitting down. They kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The chapter began with the events preceding the cross, the crucifixion, the tragedy of Judas in verses 3 through 10, the trial before Pilate in verses 1 and 2, and then verse 11 through 26, and then the travesty of the soldiers in verses 27 through 31. The chapter continued with the carrier of the cross, an African named Simon from Cyrene in verses 32 and 33. Now the narrative turns our attention to Calvary, verse 33, a bitter cup, verse 34. We see the clothing below the cross in verses 35 and 36, the citation over the cross and the king in verse 37. The clothing fulfills prophecy and the citation reads, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Later, we're going to read about the criminals alongside the king in verse 38, the contempt of the crowd in verse 39, the contempt of the Jewish leaders in verse 41, the contempt even of the criminals in verse 44. It's impossible, literally, to exaggerate the significance of the cross or to exhaust the meaning of Christ's cross. David Watson wrote, quote, The cross is a picture of violence, yet the key to peace. It's a picture of suffering, but it's the key to healing. It's a picture of death, but it's the key to life. The English journalist Malcolm Muggridge reminds us, quote, The cross is real wood. The nails are real iron. The vinegar truly tastes bitter. The cry of desolation is live, not recorded. Oswald Chambers whispers its mystery when he writes, quote, The cross is the crystallized point in history where time merges with eternity. It is quite literally the focal point of all reality. It is the one place, the exclusive place, and the only place where your sin can be absolved and where righteousness can be a part of your life. And so we begin at the place of the cross, the king at Calvary, 
Look what it says in verse 33. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, Matthew literally lapses into the Aramaic language. This word, Golgotha, is both Aramaic and Hebrew. Remember, Aramaic is a borrowed language from Hebrew. So it is both the Aramaic and the Hebrew word for the place of the cross. We don't know its exact location. There's a limestone outcropping outside the city. I've been there many, many times. It's a gigantic protrudence of of limestone and it's cut in such a way that it looks strangely like a skull. It's a place near what's come for many people to be the place where Jesus was buried, Gordon's tomb. Most conservative scholars suggest that the place is more likely near the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in an area that used to be outside the northern wall on a hill in the city wall. Our English word Calvary comes from the Latin word for this, Calvaria, which means skull. The Greek translation is an alliteration of Golgotha, Cranion, you know that word, cranium. It's the place where your brain sits inside. (laughs) Calvary, Oswald Chambers says, means the place of a skull and where our Lord is always crucified in the culture and the intellect of men, unquote. Lucy Shaw says, quote, Christ in his weakest hour performs his greatest work dying on the cross to redeem mankind. For him to see me mended, I must see him torn, unquote. And that's exactly right. This is the place where you see yourself in the most vivid terms. In broadest terms, Jesus is killed on planet earth. I know many of you wish that you could go with me to Israel, that you could go with me to Jerusalem, that you could go with me to this place. But I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is killed on this planet, the planet Earth. We can go to the Middle East. We can go to the province of Judea. We can go to the city of Jerusalem. We can go just outside the city walls. The thing that makes this planet important, it's the place where Jesus died. You can walk outside after church and pick up a handful of dirt. And if you can imagine travelers from all across the galaxy and the universe, they would long to be in this most sacred place where Jesus dies. Calvary is the place where Jesus is executed. The reason why this becomes important and the reason why the place becomes important is because it's your place. This is the place where you come from. 
This is the world into which you were born. This is the place where you were born and you will live and you will die. The exact place called Golgotha isn't exactly known. Was this the place where condemned criminals received judgment? The answer is yes. And clearly the skull is almost a universal symbol for death. In Adam, all die on the earth. You've probably connected the dots by now. What's the name of our church? Calvary. And you're thinking, who in their right mind would name their church Skull Church? Or Skull Chapel? Why in the world would anyone call a church the place where people go to die. It's because this is the place where Jesus will go to die. It will be the place where you were supposed to die. It becomes, again, a sacred place. This is the place, according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, that Jesus would appear to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The place was prophesied. His death was essential. It was a necessary death. And so peering back from the old covenant in the book of Genesis, I've already mentioned to you in Genesis chapter 22 that it is this place, it is this place where Abraham takes his son Isaac and he walks up a lonely hill. This is the place where he is going to ritualistically offer, not ritualistically, literally, to offer his son and an angel from heaven is going to stay his hand and prevent him from plunging this stone knife through the heart of his own son this is the place and we go from the place to the pain look what it says in verse 34 they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink but when he had tasted it he would not drink then they crucified him the soldiers offer wine, Greek word, onios. It's always translated that way. It's always fermented wine. It's wine that has alcohol. Gaul translates an interesting word, chloe or kole. It, it, in Mark, it signifies wine mixed with myrrh. Hence, we get the term vinegar in Mark 15, 23. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall. H.B. Sweat says, quote, that wine drag, drugged with myrrh was usually offered to condemned malefactors through, through a charity, it is said, of the women in Jerusalem. The intention was to deaden the sense of the pain, unquote. So apparently in the midst of this horror, in the midst of this execution, a group of kind ladies had gathered together and created a fund whereby condemned criminals could be drugged at least in part to take at least a little bit of the pain away. The intention being to deaden, he says, the pain. But Jesus declines. Quote, 
he had need of the full use of his human faculties. And the pain which was before him belonged to the cup which the Father's will had appointed, unquote. In Mark's gospel, it says that he refused it. In Matthew's gospel, it says that he tasted it and rejected it. And that's probably true. In other words, both are true. Was this an act of mercy? Some say no. The intent may have been to prolong and increase the pain and suffering. In other words, for some people it is, would this cause the pain <coughs> to be less? Or would it cause the pain to be more? Whatever the answer, Jesus refuses the potion. And you'll remember that myrrh was very, very expensive. It was given to Jesus by the wise men at, at his birth. Exodus 30 reminds us that it was used to anoint prophets, priests, kings. Psalm 45 refers to it as a perfume. John 19 tells us this is the substance that you would have used for embalming. But Jesus is determined to drink from the cup that his father has assigned to him. It is this cross. Jesus will endure the full measure of pain. Physical, emotional. Jesus is going to experience it because he's the one who's anointed. And we typically think of him as the anointed one. But again, we live in a culture and a society that has played hard and loose even with the word anointing. He is set apart. He is anointed for death. His name is like ointment poured forth. According to both the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus comes to die. Matthew may have been thinking about Psalm 69, verses 20 and 21, which reads, reproach has broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink, unquote. A thousand years earlier, David, his great, great, many times removed father, the sweet psalmist of Israel, writes in Psalm twenty-two, fourteen, a description of the internal mechanism that's going inside the heart of the Savior. Quote, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. There's a physical image that we see of a human being being crucified, but there is an internal mechanism of profound pain. Matthew writes simply in verse 35, then they crucified him. 
Some scholars suggest this isn't a reference to the finished execution, but rather to the raising of the victim upright and then placing the vertical beam into the hole prepared for it. The picture is one of a person being placed on what's called the patibulum, where he is nailed. This is affixed to the cross, and then it is dropped in the hole. In Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 25, it says, Now it was about the third hour, and they crucified him. In the Roman reckoning of time, the third hour would have been about 9 o'clock. The date, 15, Nisan, A.D. 30 or 33. Jesus is going to hang on this cross for six hours. It's interesting that Matthew spares the reader the awful details. It would appear that the gospel writers aren't going to tell us the gruesome details. And the reason why, even though this gospel is written a generation after the death of Jesus' execution, again, for graciousness' sake, for pity's sake, just mentioning the word crucify is going to engender profound feelings of distress. It's almost impossible to put it in modern culture, the point that I'm trying to make. It would be like if I said to you the words school shooting. Do I have to really go into the details? See, even though Columbine took place what seems like a generation before, just saying those two words are going to elicit a response for those of us who have been profoundly affected by loss. The Bible writers aren't just simply interested in giving us the gruesome details or, again, to feel bad about what happened to Jesus. The Bible writers want to accept and embrace the true message of the cross. Paul, later writing about this, is, is going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ. And him crucified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 21 through 23 Paul writes. For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jew, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. When the Roman soldiers wanted to hasten the process of death, they would have taken a wooden mallet and smashed the shins of the victim in order to make it impossible for that person to breathe because most people who died on the cross died by asphyxiation. The, the victim would choke, their lungs would collapse, and the person would literally die for lack of air. Polite people refused to talk about it. It was a word that was so gruesome 
and so filled with horror that cultured people would make sure that it wasn't a part of their speech. Crucifixion isn't simply painful. In this culture and society, it's shameful. It's something so shameful that it's almost hard for us to understand because in our culture and society, it has come to simply be a symbol rather than the substance of what happened to our Savior. And it's very, very difficult when something becomes a symbol. For many of us, as we've been watching the news and we see the horrific shooting that took place in Florida, the word Columbine comes up repeatedly in conversation. It's a Columbine-like event. And we think, what happened? How did the word Columbine become a symbol for the horror that takes place when someone is killed on a campus? It's almost as if I took a picture of my grandchildren out to you and I said, let me show you a picture of my grandchild. A picture is never going to serve as a substitute for the reality that is my grandchild or my child. For the people who have suffered such an enormous loss, they understand that it's easy for a symbol to denigrate the substance of the loss. There are people who will sometimes come to our church and they'll look around and they'll say, well, where's the cross? And I'll say, didn't I tell you about the cross? I speak about it in every service. The cross is the gospel. It's the sacrifice of Jesus where you experience grace and mercy and love. Roman citizens could not be executed in such a painful and humiliating fashion no matter how heinous their crimes. The only exception is on the special orders of the emperor himself could a Roman citizen experience such a cruel fate. To the Roman, to the Greek, to the Jew, it was absurd to think that God's son could die in such a way. It was unthinkable. No matter and no wonder, Paul writes, it is foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. The pain from the placement of the nails in Jesus' wrists would have sent shooting shockwaves of pain through his radial nerves. Muscle spasms and lungs are no longer able to function properly. Each gasp of air exacerbates and then exaggerates the pain. Think about it. It is pain when you simply breathe in and it is pain when you exhale. And the only way a crucified person could bring, breathe was to take the full weight upon their feet, which is also nailed to the cross. The feet would have had a single nail carefully placed between the tibia and the fibia. And to exhale, the victim would have to bend the knee, casting the full weight of the body to hang on the wrist. And then he would once again have to lift himself up. Each 
breath, painfully terrifying. The origin of this practice began in Persia. Others argue that it began with the Assyrians who invented it as a means to punish their enemies. The Carthaginians exported it to the north of Africa, but the Romans turned crucifixion into the science of torture. It was intended to exact the most amount of pain for the most amount of time. Cicero said that even the basest criminal didn't deserve to die like that. Matthew's description is simple and unemotional. There's no drama. There's no details. But time itself will never catch up with all that could be said about what happened. But certain things have to be said. Paul saw in the image of the crucified Savior a plea to be reconciled to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul uses the image as the image that serves as the basis for him to whomever he's speaking to them to beg them, to beg them to turn from their sin and to recognize and see the Savior. It is at the cross that we're invited to ponder the necessity of his death. He was made sin for us. At the cross, we're invited to muse over the reality of his death. He will taste death, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. At the cross, we're invited to think and meditate on that death. Galatians, or Hebrews 12, 2, he endured the cross. Galatians 3, 13, Jesus willingly gives himself for us. At the cross, we're invited to investigate, and then claim the benefits of his death. This is why it's such an important message, because there is no other place where you can receive absolution, forgiveness, grace, mercy, hope. He empties his life in order to fill your life And we must not forget the grand purpose of his death, to forgive sins and reconcile us to God. The death of Jesus, it's the death of Jesus that brings us to God. It's not religion that brings you to God. It's not even Protestant religion. It's not even evangelical religion. It is this act. It is this act in time and space. A real person upon a real cross dying for you. In 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ suffered once 
for sins, the just, that's Jesus, for the unjust. That word unjust, if you have a Bible at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, you should circle the word unjust and then right over the top of it, M-E. This is me. This is me. This is the person who doesn't deserve to have his or her sins forgiven, to be, to be cleansed and to be given the righteousness. This is for me, the just, that's him. For the unjust, that's me. I'm not worthy. Of course you're not. I can't be good enough. You're exactly right. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We see in the cross this picture of salvation. But some of us just look at the picture, but we don't look at the details. You see this great big glimpse, and sometimes it takes Time to literally look at the details of what's been given to us. It contains all the elements necessary to secure salvation. Blood, a person, grace. Salvation has always been by blood. It has always been by a person. It has always been by grace. There is no such thing as salvation apart from a person, apart from blood, apart from grace. Christianity is the unique religion of atonement. The gospel and Christ and Christianity can't simply be summed up as a system of good works or ethics, but rather it's a call for the entire world to acknowledge its sin and its need for a savior. And that's why this message should be preached in Florida, in Colorado, in California. In Hawaii, in China, in Borneo, there is no place, there is no place on the planet Earth where this message shouldn't be preached. And we see the prophecy of the cross. We go from the place to the pain to the prophecy. Look what it says. And they divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Some scholars suggest that Jesus is naked at this point. Others argue that Jewish sensibilities would require at least a loin cloth. Knowing Jews and Jewish culture, it would have made sense to leave the loincloth on. But knowing Rome and knowing Roman culture, there's no limit to the place and the humiliation that they were willing to impose on their victims. You would think that sin would have sensibility. That there would be certain places, there would be certain things, there would be certain things that common decency requires that you not go there. But sin pushes the limits. Jesus is either naked or almost naked. Whatever the truth, this is humiliating. 
You know, in our culture, in our society around the world, we recognize people by distinctive dress. If you've been watching the Olympics, you'll notice that the Olympians from all over the world share a common kind of dress as they compete in the games. But sometimes at the beginning of the games, they'll enter in into their own distinctive dress. You know, Eskimos dress quite differently from people in California. Vikings dressed differently from visitors to Vail. Jesus is stripped because there's nothing distinctive about his clothing that is going to cause him to identify with only the Jew or only the Gentile. By the way, all Jewish men, all Jewish men wore five articles of clothing. Number one, a turban or a headband or a headscarf. Every Jewish person in the first century would have had this. Number two, an inner garment or a cloak. It would have been like a gigantic nightshirt made of linen or like a linen poncho. And number three, there would be a belt or a sash in which to tie the inner garment. Number four, there would be an outer garment or a coat or a heavier cloak that would have been made very much like a blanket. And number five, there would be a pair of sandals or walking shoes or walking boots. Now remember what I told you, as Jesus is walking out, there's four soldiers, two in the front, two in the back. One of those soldiers is carrying the distinctive placard with the accusation, it's now nailed to the cross. The seamless robe is discussed in John chapter 19, verse 23. The outer garment, according to John, was so valuable that they couldn't in good conscience tear it into four pieces. In John 19, it says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments, that's the garments that I just described, and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic, that's the outer garment, now, the tunic or the outer garment was without seam, woven from the top to the bottom. So even in that culture and society, even among the Romans, this particular garment had real value. And so the casting of lots was done, perhaps by rolling Roman dice or, or, or drawing straws. Whatever is happening, it is happening and it's a decision that seemingly is made by chance. But Matthew wants the reader to make absolute understanding that what is happening around this scene isn't the product of chance. It isn't the product of, of, of circumstances. All of this was prophesied in advance. Another prophecy is fulfilled. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: They divide my garments among them. They cast lots. For my clothing. The Lord God of the universe. From before time began. Is orchestrating and or organizing and ordering. The specific dirty details. Of the death of our Lord. And so what's the spiritual significance of his garments? 
We've talked a little bit about it. The seamless robe pictures this perfect Jesus. He is perfect in his humanity. You've heard the expression that clothes make the man. But God is going to allow Jesus to be stripped, exposed, humiliated, punished. Jesus takes off his robe of righteousness. And he places it on your exposed, sinful condition before God. Our clothes, remember, are a fitting symbol for our sinful condition. You'll remember that Adam and Eve sinned in a perfect paradise. Our parents attempted to cover their nakedness by sewing fig leaves together. And so fig leaves became a perpetual symbol of man-made religion, of, of a way to try and figure out a way to, ex, to clothe, to hide our own humiliation, our own shame, our own sin. But the way that God in his mercy is going to deal with our humiliation and our sin, he is going to kill an animal. He is going to kill the animal and then he is going to wrap our parents in the garment of the animal. It is the shedding of blood. It's the shedding of innocent blood. God sheds blood to hide our nakedness. We can't stand before a holy and a pure God in our fallen and sinful condition. And for the person who, who asks me the question, well, why can't he just get over it? Why can't God, who is the creator of all things, why, why can't he just say, you know what? Look, what you've done is wrong and it's no big deal. I'm just going to forgive you. For the person who makes that statement, they they fall into three profound errors. They completely misunderstand the holiness of God. They completely misunderstand the sinfulness of, of what has happened, how egregious it is to offend God. And the way that I try to help people understand that is, imagine after the service you slap me in the face. I might just slap you back. But imagine you go to the governor's mansion and you slap the governor. What's probably going to happen to you? You're going to probably go to jail. What if you go to the White House and you attempt to assault the President of the United States? Chances are you're going to be shot. You're going to be shot. You'll notice that in direct proportion to the office and the authority that is being threatened, the consequences become greater and greater and greater. An FBI agent was on the news this last week who I happen to know. He was on a very well-known news network. And he was asked by a very well-known news broadcaster what he thought about the shooting in Florida. The former FBI agent patiently tried to maintain his composure. He sputtered, don't you understand that these children are God's children? 
It was his way of saying, they're made in the image of God. Don't you understand what's happening? Don't you understand that these children are created by God? They're made by God. They have infinite importance and significance. And he couldn't go on. He just simply broke down and started to weep. And he couldn't continue the conversation. It's probably because our culture is unprepared to have a conversation about just how horrific sin is. Our culture, like the ancient Jews and Greeks, are disgusted by something so violent, so horrible, so terrible, so cruel as a cross. But God knows that we require a new garment. In order to cover our nakedness, we're going to need something that only God can provide and that only Jesus can make. All we have to offer are our man-made garments that only seem to cover our sin, seem to hide our iniquity. Many think that it's disgusting and unacceptable that God would require blood and that he would require a sacrifice. Religious people want to love and honor the man Jesus, the philosopher Jesus, the good shepherd Jesus, the teacher Jesus, the lover of little children Jesus. But it's the Bible's teaching on the centrality and the necessity of the cross that they want to leave out of the conversation. Why blood? Because salvation has always been by blood. Innocent blood. Shed blood. Applied blood. Hebrews 9.22 And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood... There is no remission. That means no forgiveness. No forgiveness. The big question that you need to really ask is have you put on the robe of righteousness? Are you wearing this holy garment? This is the garment that's been provided for you. Do you ever wonder which soldier won the prize of the seamless robe? There was a a popular book written called The Robe, and then it was made into a movie. Was the Galilean's robe, though seamless and valuable, among the peasants of that region, it would have been no match for a Roman toga. Did the soldier want this robe so that he could sell it at the market? Did he keep the garment? Remember, in our culture and society, what they want to do is they want to fill this garment with magical powers. But there's nothing magical about the cross or the sacrifice of Jesus. It's something supernatural, eternal. Why in our story would a Roman soldier end up with this kind of a keepsake? I'm going to suggest to you that even as Matthew is writing these words, 
He's inviting us to consider that even the most vile sinner, the most wretched sinner, the most mocking, clueless person can experience what it means to know hope and love. Imagine the scene. Jesus above, dying for the sins of humanity. The soldiers below, playing a game. The soldiers have no idea that they're a part of a larger story. A story that was predicted centuries in advance. The soldiers are the subjects of the prophecy and they fulfill the prophecy. And they have no idea that that is what's happening. And so many people live their lives having no idea that their life, their birth, Their life is brought into a world in order to become a part of a new story. The story of love and forgiveness and redemption. The Jewish leaders didn't mean to fulfill prophecy by handing Jesus over on that day. The Jewish Passover, the day of preparation. Pilate didn't know that he was fulfilling prophecy by finding Jesus innocent and still executing him. The soldiers have no idea that they're fulfilling prophecy. But each person, each person who hears the gospel and responds is also fulfilling prophecy. The Bible says that some people are going to hear, that they're going to understand, and that they're going to obey. When you hear what Jesus has done, you can experience his life and his love. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2, it says, They pierced my hands and my feet, Psalm twenty-two sixteen. 16. Zechariah 12, 2, They will look on him whom they pierced. The death of Jesus isn't simply told in advance. The explanation is also given in advance. Isaiah predicts he's going to be despised and rejected, Isaiah 53.3. A man of sorrows and grief, Isaiah 53.3. Bearing our sorrows and griefs, Isaiah 53.4. Wounded and bruised, Isaiah 53.5. The prophet says... All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That means every foul, disgusting, and disturbing thing that you've ever said or done is placed on Jesus. The scriptures are clear. God shows his love by Christ dying, Romans 5.8. He dies for sins, Galatians 1.4. He does it to destroy the works of the devil, verse John chapter 3, verse 8. And so finally, we see the posting on the cross. Look what it says in verse 37. And they put over his head the accusation against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The written charges are placed on the cross, stating the condemned man's crime. Pilate orders the soldiers to write, quote, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The chief priests are outraged. They insist that Pilate change the words to read, He said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate said, What I have written, I have written, John 19, 21. 
You know what it makes me wonder? It makes me wonder if Pilate was handed the tablet or the scroll and he literally wrote the charges out with his own hand and places it on the cross. And notice the placard is above his head. Why is that important? They put it over his head. Well, if you have a Jehovah's Witness friend, they believe that Jesus died on a stake. This particular passage of scripture tells us, no, Jesus dies on a cross. There's a placard above him and a beam beside him. The chief priests are, again, outraged. Rome puts him to death for political reasons. The religious leaders put him to death for religious reasons. The rest of the world puts him to death for personal reasons. The posting of the charge was to make clear the victim's offense and to serve as a warning for anyone else determined to commit the same crime. Think about what you're reading. His crime, he's the king of the Jews. No king, no Jewish kings allowed. We know the accusation is posted in three languages, Latin, Greek, Aramaic. Every literate pilgrim in Jerusalem would have been able to read the sign. We read about it in Matthew, Mark 15.26, Luke 23.38, John 19.26. The sign is listed in every single gospel. And again, the casual reader might be tempted to think that the gospel offers contradictory statements concerning the sign. Nothing could be further from the truth. No single evangelist quotes the entire inscription. The full title probably reads, quote, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, unquote. His title reveals his right to rule. What's his crime? He's the king who was promised in the Old Testament. He's the king revealed in the signs that he does. He is the king resisted and then rejected. Dave Brown says, quote, All the kings throughout history sent their people out to die for them. Only one person ever died for their people, willingly and lovingly, unquote. Your king, he doesn't send you out to die for him. He comes from heaven to die for you. What an interesting thought. Jesus, the king who dies for his subjects, you know, it would seem at least at the beginning that most of the Roman soldiers thought Jesus being a king was a big, fat, stinking joke. Philip Schaff, in a single sentence, sums up King Jesus, quote, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquers more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon, unquote. Hugh Latimer, preaching before King Henry VIII, said, Latimer! Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say. Henry the king is here. 
He pauses a very long time. And then he says, Latimer, 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 be careful what you say. The king of kings is here. Latimer is very much aware that he is in the presence of the deciding judge who speaks throughout the ages for all of eternity. I read an interesting story while taking a prisoner from Guelph in Ontario, also known as the Royal City, to a correctional facility to be arraigned on charges of attempted robbery. Police Constable John Bolton noticed a key around the neck of the charged prisoner and the convict. And knowing that the man was not religious, he looked at this symbol that looked like a cross and then he took a closer look and the prisoner attempted to conceal something protruding from the top of the cross and when questioned he said it was a good luck charm designed like a spoon for sniffing cocaine but constable bolton was sure that it looked a lot like a handcuff key and so by experimentation he took the key off of the prisoner and attempted to open up the handcuffs with the key, and sure enough, it worked. And the discovery led to the exposure of a bunch of prisoners who were wearing cross keys. There's a cross that sets men free. There's a cross that sets men free from the bondage of sin and the law. But a lot of people are way more concerned about the freedom for the body than they are for the freedom of the soul. And so whether you're inside prison or outside prison, there's a certain cross. There's a certain cross that each and every person needs in order to be free from sin. In order to experience the righteousness of Christ. Charles Wesley, over 200 years ago, wrote, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me? Who caused his pain for me? Who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst died for me? We sing, Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? This is the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. I pray for the person, Lord, who wonders whether or not a cross and a sacrifice is sufficient to cleanse from all sin and every sin. And not just to simply take away sin, to make it possible that we can stand in righteousness before an offended God, fully exonerated. And Lord, again, I pray, I pray, I pray for that person 
who sees in the cross a stumbling block, who is literally offended by the cross. Lord, I pray, I pray that I would confine my offense to this message. That, Lord, if the only offensive thing that I say is that Jesus died for sinners, I can live with that. Lord, we know. We know that we live in a culture and a society that's trying to distance itself from the sacrifice of Jesus, from the symbolism of the cross, let alone the substance of the cross. But Lord, if the world manages to tear down every single cross and burn every single symbol and do away with the public understanding of the sacrifice of Jesus, Lord, I pray that in our hearts we would be forever grateful that Jesus has come into the world to save sinners whom Paul said he was first and foremost. And so, Lord, again, I pray, I pray, I pray for that person who's never made their commitment. Lord, I pray that they would believe not just in the historical events surrounding this cross, not just the place, not just the pain, but Lord, that they would place their confidence in the power that the cross contains to forgive them and reconcile them to God. Lord, like Paul so long ago, I'm pleading, I'm pleading, I'm begging people to turn from their sin, to turn to the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.